Hello and welcome to the Reformational Anglican Podcast, where we explore the riches of the Anglican faith for the good of the church today. Uh, your hosts today are myself, Ryan Scott, and across the table from me here, I have uh, Sam Pilo, and we are broadcasting live from Oak Hill College. Well, live at the moment, anyway. Uh, and today we're thinking a little bit about the topic of Christology, or who is Jesus, both God and man. And so to start off, I'm going to give Sam a little bit of a quiz uh, to see if he knows his Christology. Uh, so to start off with then, uh, Sam, what is Nestorianism? Uh, would that be the heresy that divides Jesus and Christ into essentially two persons? That seems right to me. Okay. What then is, we'll make this a little bit harder, what is uh, monophysitism? Uh, monophysitism is the heresy that combines the the human nature and the divine nature of Christ into a a third thing that's not really not really human or divine. Great. Okay, what is Apollinarianism? Apollinarianism um it takes apart Jesus' humanity. It says that Jesus really in the incarnation takes on a body. Uh he doesn't need to take on a human soul because he already has a sort of incorporeal um soul type thing already so he doesn't need a he's already capable of driving a human body with what he's got so he doesn't need a human spirit mm, sounds good sounds good uh docetism uh uh docetism uh comes from the greek dokeo uh i i i seem so it's jesus seems to be human he seems to be incarnate uh but really he's, he's um it's a bit like a hologram he's just just appears to be there um but uh it comes from a I guess a low view of of humanity of, of matter, um. So they thought Jesus couldn't really be be truly God and be truly incarnate, and so they they downplay uh, the reality of the incarnation. Great. I'm gonna keep going quick fire here to stress some out. Monotheism. Uh, Monotheism is the heresy that uh, Jesus has one will. Um. So Jesus doesn't have uh, doesn't have a divine will and a human will. He only has one will. Uh. That was condemned. Uh sometime in the 6th century maybe i think i'm clearly losing here sam's clearly winning okay <laughs> um here we go patripassianism patripassianism is the heresy that uh the father um suffers as jesus is dying on the cross uh i don't know if it's it's probably linked to sabellianism uh, that that fails to distinguish properly between the three persons oh this is good this you're you're hard to you're hard to catch out here sam Okay, and uh, the last one here is Pistolanthropism. I'm going to have to pass on that one. <laughs> Do you want to tell us what that is, Ryan? Yeah, I may be pronouncing it wrong, but apparently this is the belief that Jesus is merely human. Uh, either he never became divine or never existed prior to the incarnation as a man. So there you go. Okay, so adoptionism. I think it's a, I think it's a form of adoptionism. And there's also this one last uh, weird heresy in the list. It's called Pro- Pro- Protestantism. That sounds like a really wacky one, so we better stay uh, stay well clear of that one. Cool. So we're we're thinking about uh, Christology today. We're working through, keeping on working through the thirty nine articles. Um, so we had Article One last last time on the uh, the Trinity, and then Article Two on Christology. Uh, Christology just means the study of of Christ, who is, as Ryan says, who is Jesus. Um, let me read. Let me read Article Two for us. 
Uh, it's entitled Of the Word or Son of God, which was made very man. Uh, the Son, which is the Word of the Father, begotten from everlasting of the Father, the very and eternal God, of one substance with the Father, took man's nature in the womb of the Blessed Virgin of her substance, so that two whole and perfect natures, that is to say, the Godhead and the manhood, were joined together in one person, never to be divided, whereof is one Christ, very God and very man, who truly suffered, was crucified, dead and buried, to reconcile his Father to us, and to be a sacrifice not only for original guilt, but also for all actual sins of men. Um, so this is uh, this article is really laying out what Anglicans believe about um, about Jesus, about who he is, about how he is both God and man, um, and even the the effect of the incarnation and his uh, his death on the cross for us. Um, to give a little bit of background, this follows on the heels from uh, right on the heels of Article One. Uh, a couple of episodes ago, we did an episode on Article One on. Uh, the doctrine of the Trinity within Anglicanism, um, and and Cranmer's still basically trying to set up Anglicanism as uh, as a branch of Christianity. Um, that the the Anglican Church is is Christian, and so he opens with um, uh, the great Catholic kind of confessions um, that we believe in the Trinity, we believe in Jesus, who's both God and man. Uh, where Cranmer's not setting up something new; uh, he's he's reaffirming uh, Catholic. Orthodoxy. That would be an ecumenical matter. Obviously, the the Trinity and uh, and Christology are related. Trinity tells us that God is is three persons in one God. Uh, Christology digs into how Jesus can be uh, the second person of the Trinity and yet um, a real human figure in history. How the second person's broken into uh, broken into creation. Um, the the article comes from. Uh, so in the 1553 articles, it was basically lifted from the Augsburg, Augsburg Confession. And then when they were uh, revamping the articles in 1563, they, they lifted a couple of extra clauses from the Wartenberg Confession. Basically, they're they're tracking with the, the Lutherans. Um, they're using the same language partly because Cranmer is hoping for, um, ultimately Cranmer is hoping for a shared confession. At the very least, he's aiming for a Protestant consensus and unity. Uh, and they agree. They agree with the Catholics as well. Um, they're sharing. They're standing in that great tradition of uh, creedal, um, creedal orthodoxy. As I said, they're, it's robbed from the Augsburg Confession, but really they're they're recapitulating uh, the Christology of the Chalcedonian definition from four fifty one. Great. So let's think about uh, the first part of the article. Says uh, that we believe in the Son, which is the Word. Of the Father, so we thought about this previously when we thought about the Trinity. Jesus is the second person of the Blessed Trinity. Uh, he's eternally begotten of the Father. There was never a time when uh, he wasn't uh, there, uh, but he is in this relationship of ofness or fromness uh, from the Father to the Son. So John five twenty six, as the Father has life in Himself, so He has granted the Son to have life in Himself. Uh, so the Son is in this relationship of ofness from the Father. The Son is also the Word, uh, or the Logos, uh, spoken out from the Father. So at the beginning of John's Gospel, we read, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And this picks up, um, this Word Logos picks up on ideas from both the Old Testament and sort of principles 
in Greek philosophy. It's really fascinating the way John brings these two things together. So if we think about the power of God's word from the Old Testament, uh, we can think, of course, of Genesis 1. Uh, God speaks and it is so. And Psalms um, 33 verse 9 says, For he spoke and it came to be, he commanded and it stood firm. So God has created this whole universe through the power of his word. And again, John's gospel, uh, chapter 1 verse 3 says, Through him all things were made, and without him nothing was made that has been made. That's right. As you say, it's picking up on that that Old Testament theme, but it's also, it seems like John's preface is, is digging into some some Greek philosophy as well. So that goes back to a guy called Heraclitus. Um, he lived a few, five or six centuries before Christ. Um, and he, he he talked about this idea of the logos. The uh, He thought it was like a rational principle that underlies creation. As the logos is the thing that gives uniformity and order and intelligibility to creation. Uh, and then ra- uh, human rationality is kind of a participation in that. Uh, that logos. Um, there's a guy called uh, Philo, Philo of Alexandria, who was uh, he was a Jewish, a Greek, a Greek-speaking uh, Jewish philosopher. Um, he's obviously read Heraclitus and Plato and all those guys, and he tried to reconcile the idea of the logos with um, that with that idea of God, God's word as the agent of creation. I think what he lands on is something similar to uh, to Arianism, to be honest, the, the word as a sort of middleman. Um, but but it's in, it's very very interesting that he um, he's trying to reconcile those ideas uh, and certainly the early church um, would have not quite affirmed that line of thinking but they would have said that that Jesus really is uh, the logos that he is um, God's word and agent of creation who who is himself uh, God so it is it is sort of subversively fulfilled um, in that and then you see in in John one uh, you've got in the beginning was the word or logos who is God who is with God. Uh, and then in verse 14, it says, uh, the word became flesh. Um, and that's the next section of uh, of the article that Jesus is not just God, or he is God and man. Yeah, so if you think about uh, the Logos would be the the rational principle that upholds everything and gives everything sort of unity and significance. Um, so I think it could be translated, I've also heard R.C. Sproul mention that uh, the word could be translated logic in the beginning uh, it was logic and logic was with God and logic was God. So if you think about the whole uh, logical upholding of the universe, the way there's this rational uniformity within the universe, uh, what actually explains that? Well, uh, it's it's the word of God that explains it, that upholds the whole universe. Uh, you see a little bit of that hinted at in Proverbs as well. Uh, it talks about, you know, wisdom was with God in the beginning and uh, he, he created and established the world through wisdom. So it's it's not that you'd... It's not that you derive uh, your doctrine of the of the Trinity from the Old Testament or um, a Christian Christology from the Old Testament, but as we as we read the Old Testament backwards, as we read it through the lens of the New, um, those things make a lot more sense. And we see, oh, this is this is somehow pointing us towards uh, Jesus before really the before the incarnation, before the Trinity has really been fully revealed. Um, so as we're saying, you know, the the, the Chalcedonian definition it. Uh, it highlights that Jesus is is God and man. It's it's a we're not going to read it out, but you can you can find it online. It's a pretty careful, technically uh, technically precise document. And be, but basically, what it affirms is that Jesus is one person with two natures. He 
Uh, he's divine. He's eternal. So he has a divine nature from all eternity. But then in the incarnation, he takes on a human nature. Um, but what what Chalcedon wants to uh, wants to to affirm is that Jesus doesn't become two persons. There's not a a human Jesus and um, a divine Christ, and they're sort of two persons. And we say, uh, oh well, Jesus Jesus does X, but Christ does Y. You know, Jesus um, gets tired. He he is amazed. He marvels. He um, he dies. He's capable of dying. But Christ is the one who walks on water and feeds the five thousand. That's uh, that's Nestorianism. That's that's splitting up Jesus into two two people. But also that the natures aren't mixed. So Jesus doesn't uh, he doesn't mix uh, his divine nature with human nature because then he'd be some some sort of third thing. He wouldn't be really divine or really human. Um, so so Carlson wants to say Jesus is one person with two natures, and the two natures aren't uh, combined; they're kept distinct. There's there's a great quote from Richard Hooker. Uh, this is the the Reformational Anglican podcast, so it's about time we crack out some some Reformational Anglicans. Uh, I'm going to read a lengthy lengthy ish quote from Richard Hooker here uh, that that sums sums this up quite well. Uh, so he says um, there are but four things which concur to make complete the whole state of our Lord Jesus Christ, namely his deity his manhood, the conjunction of both, and the distinction of one from the other, which are joined in one. Four principal heresies there are which have in those things withstood the truth. Arians, by by bending themselves against the deity of Christ. Apollinarians, by maiming and misinterpreting that which belongeth to his human nature. Nestorians, by rending Christ asunder and dividing him into two persons. The followers of Eutyches by confounding his person, confounding in his person those natures which they should distinguish. Against these, there have been four most famous ancient ancient general councils: the Council of Nicaea to define against the Arians, uh, against Apollinarians, the Council of Constantinople, the Council of Ephesus against the Nestorians, against Eutychians, the Council of Chalcedon. In four words, these are in Greek, so you'll have to forgive my. Uh, my pronunciation it says in four words: uh, Alethos, Teleos, Adiaretos, and Asukutos. Truly, perfectly, indivisibly, and distinctly. Uh, the first applied to his being God; he is truly God. Uh, the second to his being man; that he is perfectly man. Uh, the third to his being being of both one; he's indivisible. And the fourth two is still continuing in that both in that one both, uh, his natures are distinct. Uh, that we may we may fully by way of abridgment comprise whatsoever antiquity hath at large handled, either in declaration of Christian belief or in refutation of the foresaid heresies, with the compass of which foreheads I may truly affirm that all heresies, all heresies which touch but the person of Jesus Christ, whether they have risen in these latter days or in any age here, heretofore may be with great facility brought to confine themselves. Um, so Hooker, it's a big claim Hooker says that these four words um, really encompass uh, Orthodox Christology and uh, and exclude any heresy. Says there's not, there's, there isn't any Christological heresy that can't be excluded by by the assertions that Jesus is, is truly God, perfectly man, indivisibly one person, but distinctly God and man with two natures. So I guess what we're talking about here then is we have one person, uh, 
the Lord Jesus and he has two natures. And then what it seems like uh, is then you have heresies that that deny uh, that he's either fully God or you have heresies that deny that he's fully man or other heresies that um, mix his natures together sort of to deny that there are two distinct natures or uh, the, the fourth category then would be heresies that so separate the natures that they threaten the idea that Jesus is sort of one person. And actually in God's sovereignty, um, heresies are quite helpful. Uh, they're quite helpful in, in helping us through, think through clearly what, you know, what does the Bible actually teach about the person of Jesus. And uh, we're, in, we're in such a great position because we can look back to the whole history of the church and they're all, all they're thinking um, about these issues. And we can have a much clearer view of who Jesus is and that helps us whenever we're reading through the scriptures then. So let's think then about uh, a couple of these heresies. Um, whenever we were talking about this, um, Sam, you made a good point about how um, heresies are easier to illustrate than the orthodox position. Do you want to tell yeah, us about well, that? Yeah, I think, well, I think it's true that every heretic has his verse. Um, and I think it's also true that, that God is uh, beyond what we can comprehend um, but we like comprehending things. We like to feel that we've mastered a subject. Uh, and so there's that danger of um, uh, lopping off the sides of, of what we're dealing with, trying to shove it into a box of our, of our understanding. We, so we tend to pick, uh, we tend to, to, um, to think that our human language can, can fully describe God uh, without any leftovers, any, any mystery. Uh, and we tend to aim for a comprehensive um, understanding that's sort of mouse trap understanding where we can uh, we can take it apart and put it back together we know how every single bit of it works uh, but actually when we arrive at a god that we understand completely we've we've arrived arrived at an idol of our own construction yeah so we, we try and flatten out i guess the mystery um but the orthodox positions try and hold together the different mysteries um together without trying to flatten them out so we you know we can comprehend them uh, completely so uh, arianism then so this is the heresy that uh, there was a time when the son was not uh, that jesus um the second person the son was uh, inferior in his being uh, to the father uh, and this is the position that is held by sort of modern day jehovah's witnesses um who believe yeah that jesus was a kind of great angel who was created by god and therefore can kind of act as, as a mediator between God and man. Um, and Athanasius wanted to come along and say, no, Jesus, uh, the son had to be fully God and fully man in order to be that bridge, to be that ladder between God and man to restore us um, back to a position where, where we could be with God. That's right. Jesus isn't a, a sort of third thing standing at a distance from God, but also at a distance from us in the middle. He, he is both. He's, he's actually... Um, there's a great line in Job where, where Job laments that there's no one who can intercede, who can place a hand on, on his shoulder and on God's shoulder and kind of uh, mediate between them. But Jesus is, is uh, fulfills that as the one who is both fully God and fully man, not sort of standing somewhere in between. Uh, so then um, Docetism. So this would be the heresy then that Jesus uh, only appeared to be human uh, and an illustration for this would be a kind of, I guess, Jesus is a, is a kind of hologram. He, he he shows up. He looks like uh, he suffers. He looks like he's hungry. He looks like um, he's human. But really, uh, it's just a kind of outward show. And behind it, he 
he's not really human, of course, because he he's he's God. He can't be totally human. Um, and then uh, we have uh, monophysitism. So this would be the sense that uh, you have the two substances that come together into just one substance, so mono one. Um, and I think in most variations of this heresy, it's the divinity that kind of swallows up um, or dilutes completely the humanity of Jesus. So if you think about maybe kind of colors coming together uh, to form one or two substances coming together to form just one substance, uh, so this would deny that the two um, natures of Christ were actually uh, distinct. They stayed distinct. Yeah, and that, that creates problems for, for the gospel. Um, if you look at uh, the book of Hebrews, for example, is a great book for, for thinking about Christology. Um, but it places a lot of weight on the fact that Jesus is just like us and that he's still just like us so that there's... Um, he identifies with us and he continues to identify with us. Uh, he's not ashamed of us because he's he's been made like us. Um, Hebrews, Hebrews 2 is really rich on this. Um, and so we're assured that there is a fully, fully perfectly human representative at the right hand of God. Um, that's simply not true. If uh, Jesus isn't really human, he's a, he's a sort of hybrid. I guess the other, the other heresy we should, we should tackle is Apollinarianism. Um, Apollinarianism, Apollinarianism um, really says that Jesus doesn't have a, a human soul. Uh, so if you look at, at scripture, you know, Jesus talks about, um, uh, makes a couple of references to his spirit when he's on the cross. He says, into your hands, I commit my spirit. He has a, a, a human soul. Um, but the Apollinarians, uh, basically Apoll Apollinaris thought that the human soul was inherently uh, sinful, inherently bent towards sin. So he thought Jesus can't really have a, a real human soul. Really, what does your soul do? It just, it's just kind of the, the non-corporeal, part of you that animates and drives your body but sure jesus already has a a non-corporeal spiritual existence uh, as, as the second person of the trinity so all he needs is a body uh, so in that in apollinarianism it's jesus doesn't have a human soul his his divine nature fills that role and he basically just takes on a body it's a bit, a bit like avatar if we can uh, if we can make that comparison i think apollinarianism is like just quite a, in some ways it's quite a natural heresy for us to fall into if there's one heresy that most maybe most christians today have you know might just assume i feel like it might be apollinarianism yeah i think i think that's fair i think we have a low view of of the incarnation a lot of the time um i guess literally incarnation means uh enfleshment think of chili con carne uh chili with chili with meat chili with flesh mm -hmm. um and and john uses language like you know the word became flesh and dwelt among us uh, but the incarnation is more than just Jesus taking on uh, a body. He takes on a human spirit. He takes on, um, he becomes capable of the whole range of human emotion. Uh, so he's, he's, he's not just hungry and tired, but he becomes sorrowful. He, uh, he's amazed. He marvels at the, the faith of the centurion. Um, he, he's, he takes on a human spirit, which is passable. It's able to be, uh, to be affected in a way that, uh, the divine nature, um, isn't affected in the same way. Yeah, and then lastly, then we have uh, the Nestorian heresy. So this would be the heresy that uh, would so want to distinguish the two natures that they kind of almost separate uh, the two natures and therefore threaten the unity um, of the one person. So 
What would be an illustration for that, Sam? So the thing that pops into my head was uh, I sort of thought, how, how would you how would you describe it? It's a bit like Jekyll and Hyde, maybe, or um, uh, Bruce Banner and the Hulk. You know, they're 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 kind of the same. There's some overlap, but really, you uh, they're different, and you attribute different actions to to each of them. So think of the you know the scene in Age of Ultron where Natasha says to to Banner, you know, I I adore you, but I need the other guy. And then he you know, shoves him off the cliff, so he comes back up as the Hulk. Um, but that's uh, the ancient historians kind of said it, it's it's the divine part of Jesus that saves us because salvation's of the Lord. Um, he just he just takes on a human nature, so he, so he, it's the human nature that dies. It's God who saves; it's the human nature who dies. But that's that's to split Jesus up into um, into two persons. Uh, I think it's helpful. It's a helpful little refrain: uh, natures don't do things persons do things i think that's a that's a helpful uh guardrail in that discussion okay so we've already chatted i think we've referred a couple of times there to um jesus as a man um just quickly you know sometimes people ask well did jesus really claim to be god and um i think it's pretty pretty clear that he did um so in john's gospel the repeated the repeated um refrain uh, is that Jesus says that he is the I am. So in John 8, before Abraham was, I am. And um, the Pharisees pick up stones to stone him. And that's because they recognize that he was referring back to Exodus chapter 3, when the Lord revealed himself uh, to Moses. He revealed the d- divine name to him. And he says, I am that I am. Other claims that Jesus made, he says that uh, he is the Lord of the Sabbath. You know, you think again back to the Old Testament. God created the world. He rested um, on the seventh day. Who could be Lord of the Sabbath but God alone? Uh, Jesus claims to be able to forgive sins. Uh, again, who can uh, forgive sins but God alone? That's something, again, the Pharisees recognized. And then Jesus also claimed that at the end of time that he would be the judge of the world. And again, from the Old Testament perspective, who could be the judge of the world uh, but God alone? So clearly Jesus is making these extraordinarily uh, high claims to himself Um, and then even when he says things like come to me all you that weary and are heavy laden and i will give you rest again what sort of a man can can claim that sort of thing for himself so you know the old testament prophets would have continually pointed towards god they would have continually pointed towards the lord and said it's in him that you can have rest but jesus comes along and he says well it's in me that you can have rest um, so again, he's claimed to be God. Then you think about his miracles. He calms the storm. He walks on water. And the Old Testament says that uh, it's only the Lord who tramples on the waves of the sea. Uh, it's only him who can still uh, the water and control it. And that's why uh, then the the other New Testament writers, uh, Paul uh, and the Apostle John, are very much able to say that, that Jesus is God. Uh, Paul says, whenever he speaks to the Ephesian elders in Acts 20, that God bought the church with his own blood and then he says in his letter to the colossians that in him in christ the fullness of deity dwells bodily colossians 2 9 and then john of course as we've already said uh, opens up his gospel by saying that the word was god and i think once you get this reality once you get the reality that jesus actually is god then the whole of the christian faith starts to make sense so this is something i often um, say whenever i'm talking to people about uh, what I believe and why I believe what I believe 
is I say that, you know, I'm convinced that Jesus was who he says he was. And if that's true, then all of his claims are true. And therefore, the whole of the Christian faith starts to make sense. Uh, really, I think the deity of Jesus is a sort of key that unlocks uh, the whole of the Christian faith um, to us. And I think so. It's such a foundational thing. It's from that reality then that the Bible starts to make sense. And we can start to see why we believe the whole of the Bible to be true and everything else. Yeah, there's a great quote from uh, from C.S. Lewis, another Anglican, um, just on that, on the centrality of uh, of the incarnation um, to the Christian faith. So this is what C.S. Lewis says. Uh, he says, But you cannot possibly strip away the miraculous from Christianity, because the Christian story is precisely the story of one grand miracle, the Christian assertion being that what is beyond all space and time, what is uncreated, eternal, came into nature, into human nature, descended into his own universe, and rose again, bringing nature with him. It is precisely one great miracle. If you take that away, there is nothing specifically Christian left. There may be many admirable things which Christianity shares with other systems in the world, but there will be nothing specifically Christian. Conversely, once you have accepted that, then you will see that all other well-established Christian miracles because, of course, there are ill-established Christian miracles. There are Christian legends, just as there are heathen legends or modern journalistic legends. You will see that all the well-established Christian miracles are part of it, so that they either prepare for or exhibit or result from the Incarnation, just as every natural event exhibits the, to the total character of the natural universe at a particular point of, a particular point and space of time. So every miracle exhibits the character of the Incarnation. Okay, so uh, the article then goes on, and one of the things it mentions, it says uh, that uh, Christ took man's nature in the womb of the Blessed Virgin uh, and of her substance. So this, uh, it's not that Jesus um, sort of just, you know, fell through uh, the womb of Mary kind of in transit before he came out the other side. Uh, it's not that he was created ex nihilo uh, within the womb. Uh, it's that he actually received his humanity uh, from Mary. Uh, the Reformed theologian Michael Horton uh, says that Jesus had Mary's DNA, which is an, an astonishing privilege, really, that Mary had, if you think about it. Mary was the one uh, from whom God takes a uh, human nature. The blood that Jesus shed on the, on the cross uh, had, amongst other things, Mary's DNA in it. And so we want to do an episode, we want to think a little bit more, how should we think uh, as Protestant Anglicans, as Reformational Anglicans, how should we think about the role of the Virgin Mary? So we'll be doing that uh, hopefully in the next episode. And then the last, um, uh, well, not the, not the last part of the article, but as we move towards the end of it, uh, it also uh, makes another plea for the sort of unity of the person. Um, so Article 2 says that Godhood and manhood were joined together into one person, never to be divided, whereof is one Christ. And because of this unity of the person, um, again, this is countering, I suppose, the Nestorian heresy that would want to divide um, the natures. Because of the unity of the one person, we can say things like, uh, you know, Jesus is God, uh, and therefore God suffered and died on the cross. So not that the divine nature suffered and died, uh, it was only his humanity that could suffer and die. God cannot suffer. God cannot die. But Jesus, the person who is both God and man, 
was able to suffer. And there's a great quote by Richard Hooker again. He refers to the fact that because of the unity of the person, uh, the church has traditionally referred to things in Jesus' humanity that um, properly pertain only to the deity and things in his deity that properly pertain only to his uh, humanity. Uh, Martin Davy says that uh, because of this, the church has felt able to affirm down through the centuries that it was God who suffered and died for our salvation. Thus, the Second Council of Constantinople in 553 declared that our Lord Jesus Christ, who was crucified in the flesh, is true God and the Lord of glory and the one of the Holy Trinity. And so that's why, again, we, we affirm that uh, God was born through the Virgin Mary. Mary is the Theotokos, the mother of God, the God-bearer. Um, and yet, in the unity of that one person, uh, that the the, the two natures come together uh, and did these things for us. And then lastly, the article goes on. It says that all of this uh, was in order to reconcile his father to us. So this amazing, astounding metaphysical event known as the incarnation. The purpose of it was to so that Jesus could go to the cross uh, so that humanity could be reconciled back with God. And this language of, of the purpose of it wasn't just to reconcile us to God, but it was actually to reconcile the Father to us. It's quite sort of interesting language. Um, so sometimes we, we often think, you know, Jesus died on the cross to save us from our sins. Uh, he died on the cross to save us from the condition that we are in. But there's another side to it. And the other side to it is that um, he also died on the cross to save us from God, uh, to save us from uh, the wrath of God that was against us. We are at, the Bible says we are at enmity um, against God. And so whenever Jesus died on the cross, he died in order to reconcile the Father to us, to turn away um, the wrath of God. And so Augustine, uh, on this kind of truth, he says something interesting. He he refers to Romans uh, 5, 8, which says that uh, while we're still sinners, Christ died for us. And he said, accordingly, in a manner wondrous and divine, God loved us even when he hated us. And so God is motivated to save us even when we're under his wrath, uh, which perfectly uh, and wondrously, uh, miraculously uh, explains the cross to us. That's great. I love in uh, Romans 3, it talks about that uh, God, it's not that Jesus, um, Jesus is the nice member of the Trinity who wants to reconcile God to us. Uh, he's, not, he's not sort of talking down his, his angry father from punishing us. Um, but that God sends his son to be to be a sacrifice to bear our sins. Uh, so Romans 3 says that, that God offers his son as a as an atoning sacrifice, a propitiation to be received by faith, uh, so that God is, is simultaneously just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. God doesn't set aside his wrath. He doesn't set aside his, his hatred of evil, uh, but he sends his son to uh, to bear that wrath. So he is he's just, he punishes God. Uh, wickedness but he punishes the guilt of his people in the person of jesus on the cross so that we are we're free from uh from bearing that punishment i think we'll draw stumps there don't forget you can email us at reformationalanglican at gmail.com or you can send us a voicemail in the the link that'll be in the show notes uh we'll uh we'll we'll pray using the the collect for uh for christmas day in a moment and then we'll we're going to play out with um, uh, O Come All You Faithful. Now, I know uh, for some people playing Christmas music in the middle of August is tantamount to heresy, but um, 
think the lyrics just really capture the the rich cradle Christology we've been speaking about. So we'll we'll make an exception just this once. Almighty God, who hast given us thine only begotten Son, to take our nature upon him, and to be born of a pure virgin, grant that we, being regenerate and made thy children by adoption and grace, may daily be renewed by the Holy Spirit. Through the same, our Lord Jesus Christ, who liveth and reigneth with thee and the same Spirit, ever one God, world without end. Amen. Oh, come, all ye faithful, joyful and triumphant. Oh, come, ye, oh, come, ye to Bethlehem. Come and behold him, born the King of angels. Oh, come, let us adore him. Oh, come, let us Oh, come, let us adore.